turn now. Normally at this time, you'd have someone come and give you a wonderful, uplifting message of goodness and wonderfulness. And I had it laid upon my heart to speak about suffering. And so I want to uh, look to the Lord real quick with a word of prayer. And then I want to have a discussion with you about suffering. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you sent your Son to be among us. We thank you that you freely give us eternal life in you. Lord, we ask that you would guide and direct our hearts and minds to learn what you would have us to learn this morning. Pray that you would guide and direct my thoughts and my words. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the Lord laid it on my heart to speak about suffering. Uh, We could start, I suppose, with the age-old question, why do good things or why do bad things happen to good people? Now, that's kind of the naive question. And I think, I suspect most of you uh, have an understanding of the answer to that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, bad things is an abstract term, but good people, we know that there is no one righteous, no, not one. There are no good people. And we know that uh, God said to Adam that don't eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, and cursed is the ground because of you. And so bad things happen universally because of sin. But the question really I want to talk about this morning is, is how do we as Christians, how do we respond to suffering? What happens when the pain comes? What happens when the hurt comes? What happens when the calamity comes? And it, each of us find ourselves in a different place in life. Some of us find ourselves totally calamity-free. Others of us find ourselves somewhat underwater. You know, some here this morning might be almost completely underwater, drinking with a tiny straw, going up to the air saying, help me, you know, Lord. Every one of us is in a different walk of life and in a different place. But these scriptures, I think, are just universally applicable because all of us will suffer at one point or another. And so I want to talk about that. How do we deal with this? How do you wrap your mind around suffering? The world is filled with so much suffering. And how do we wrap our minds and our hearts around it? You can't really speak of suffering without turning to the book of Job. And so I'm going to turn to the book of Job. How many of you have never studied, don't know anything about the book of Job? How many of you like the book of Job, you mean? Nobody? Nobody? Well, it's pronounced Job, but it's spelled Job. And... That's where we're going to start this morning. I want to speak um, about, we're going to learn a little bit about this this guy here named Job. Now, I'm going to read, well, I do have my Bible here open and I can focus on it, but it's still better contrast to, to use my electronic Bible. And so I can zoom up on the letters. I'm going to read to you. This is out of the Berean Study Bible translation, which is a new translation, which is somewhat reminiscent of the... Uh, New English translation, the second version of the NET Bible. It follows somewhat closely to that one. So Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And this man was blameless and upright, fearing God and shunning evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man of all the people of the East. This is the background of this guy, Job. So he's a pretty spectacular man. 
So let me give you actually some background on the book itself. Now, this book, the book of Job, is one of the oldest books in the Bible. It is uh, really, it's, we don't, we don't have a very good idea as to the date, but you can tell from, there, there's some hints in here. So first of all, he's, his wealth is measured in the number of animals he owns. Right? That's a very ancient, that gives you the clue. This guy, this is, this is old. Um, at the end of the story, when his family gives him uh, money, uh, they give him money in an ancient word, which is some sort of a measurement, but we have no idea what that measurement is. The, the, the amount of that measurement is completely lost to all of history. It's, uh, it's not a coinage, but it's some sort of measurement. We don't have any idea uh, what that is. Uh, after uh, he gets through his ordeal here in the book of Job, we read that he, read, he lives 140 years, and that's pretty old. The Septuagint translation, I believe it is, says that he's 70 entering into this. We don't know if that's really true or not, but he had uh, seven sons and three daughters. So he's, uh, he's, you know, up there enough, old enough before this all happens to have uh, a lot of kids. And he lives 140 years afterwards. So he lived a long, full life. And that would be more in order with uh, the people several generations after Noah. Now, if you'll recall, before the flood... People lived close to a thousand years for the most part. After the flood, if you graph it over time, you find it, it sharply declines. It uh, rounds off, uh, inflects somewhere around uh, 200. Actually, it continues to go down. Um, but uh, if Job lived to be you know, somewhere around 200 years, he might be a contemporary of Abraham. So we don't really know, but he's probably sometime about 2000 B.C., or older, maybe 2500 B.C. to 2000 B.C., somewhere in there is when this this old ancient patriarch named Job lived. And so we have his story here in the book. It's a really interesting story, and for the most part, the book is all poetry. It's all dialogue. Well, not all, but it's it's largely dialogue in the form of Hebrew poetry. And it's kind of uh, roundabout poetry, it doesn't rhyme like English poetry, and it has, uh, but you'll find it is indented in a funny way in your Bible, which tells you that you can tell that way. No rhyming, but strange indentation. That means it's poetry. The first little bit, though, is in non-poetic prose form. So the introduction and the conclusion is in prose, and it tells us a hint as to what happened. But by the large part, this is a dialogue between Job and his uh, three friends, then another friend comes along, and then finally God enters the dialogue himself. And so, a calamity befalls Job. And it's an interesting kind of calamity. If you, uh, if you read through here, you'll see in verse 6 it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. This is a strange picture, isn't it? The sons of God. Now this is referring to angels, we believe. The sons of God that are talk, spoken of here. We believe that these are angels. So there was a day when these angels came to present themselves before the Lord. Some sort of a holy staff meeting, if you will. But strangely enough, we find that Satan also came among them. Isn't that interesting? This is, this is the New American Standard I'm reading. Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, whose name in Hebrew is Satan, it means accuser, adversary. The Lord said to Satan, 
From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. He roams about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Well, that's a good description, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to have the Lord God brag to Satan about you? That is an amazing thing. But here in verse 9, we see Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. He'll surely curse you to your face. This is Satan's goal. He wants Job to curse God to his face. Spoiler alert, he doesn't. He does not curse God. But Satan wants nothing more. And he predicts here that Job is going to curse God to his face. Now, that's really tantamount to, I I think that the curse that he's speaking of here, that's tantamount to basically saying, you are not who you say you are, God. You're either non-existent or you're evil or you're sadistic or something along those lines. It's basically turning your heart against God. Now, Job does not ever do this. But Satan predicts that he will. Satan has some sort of intellect. Perhaps he's, he's probably much more brilliant than I am, but he doesn't know everything, and he was wrong in this. But he says, you know, he'll surely curse you to your face. So now God, he, he invites God, put forth, Satan says, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. Well, God's not going to do that. Does God, is God the author of evil? Does God hurt someone? No, but God does allow Satan. God gives him permission. He says, the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. We're going to skip this next little bit. Guess what Satan does? He goes and blasts everything that Job has. And so at the end of all that, in verse 20, Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and he worshiped. So Job has this bad stuff happen to him, and here's his response. He worships. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Possibly the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Well, that's a pretty good testimony there in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 22. Isn't that wonderful? But again, Satan comes. There's another one of these kind of heavenly staff meetings. I'm not sure how often these take place, but... Doesn't it make you wonder? Do you wonder? Like, how often do these take place? Do these, do, do they regular, does God still have a staff meeting like this? Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? Oh, man, poor Job. Maybe it's not so good a thing to have God brag about you. Have you considered my servant Job? Poor guy. He has no idea. For there's no one like him in the earth. Blameless, upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Now, of course, it was actually Satan himself who did this, but God is speaking here in uh, anthropomorphical, logical language. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his 
bone and his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. This is what Satan wants. He wants him to curse him to his face. He wants Job to just say, forget it. There is no God, right? And so here's what the Lord says to Satan in verse 6. Isn't this interesting? The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. This is my New American Standard translation. Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. So this word here for spare, this is really interesting. You want to know what that word for spare means? i got to scroll down to where I have, uh, you know, I don't know where it is in my notes. Anyway, the word for spare here is basically guard. Satan is commanded by God to act as a guard. He Do whatever he wants. You, you know, you can touch him, but you must guard his life. You not, like Satan is not allowed to let Job die. Isn't that kind of interesting? God puts this hard restriction. Yeah. Okay, fine, infect him or whatever, but I command you, spare his life, guard his life, preserve his life. And so Satan goes forth and it says he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So he gave him some sort of an infection or something. You know? And so here's poor Job. He took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. And so... I want to talk about the responses to suffering. So Job was suffering. He suffered the loss of his kids, the loss of his wealth. It was all taken from him. And finally, the loss of his health. And we see some interesting responses to suffering in here. Now, the first response comes from an unexpected place. The first response here is in chapter 2, verse 10. Well, let's read verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Oh, I wonder if she knew whose words she was uh, repeating there. Did, I wonder, did she have an idea? Do you think she knew that she was urging him on to do the very thing that Satan had? Satan's like, yes, yes, go, Mrs. Job. Go, Mrs. Job. <laughs> you go, right? And so poor Mrs. Job. Now, you've got to feel sorry for her. It's not just Job who's suffering. Does not the wife of someone suffer as well. It was her children as well that died. Her wealth, her inheritance as well is gone, right? And now her husband is smote with these boils, right? And so I want to talk about this um, this this disease he was smote with a little bit. Um, you know, he's got some sort of an infection. He's got some pus that has to be scraped away with a piece of broken pottery. Um, his skin was so disfigured that even his friends later on uh, in chapter 2, his friends don't even recognize him when they come in in verse 12. And um, it seems to have, he says it gave him a foul breath and a loathsome smell. And the sores bred worms and they opened and ran. Uh, he was tormented with dreams. He felt like he was choking. His bones were racked with burning pain. He was not able to rise from his place. And so Job's wife is looking at all this, and she's like, her, her, her life is close to every bit as ruined as Job's, in a matter of speaking. In fact, the English translation that we have, which largely comes from the Masoretic text, uh, doesn't have nearly the uh, maybe gratuitous description that the Septuagint has. I want to read you from the Septuagint. This is translated into English from the Greek Septuagint. Uh, which goes beyond the scriptures, but maybe gives us some sort of a an insight as to her perspective. This is uh, here in verse 10. When a long time had passed, his wife said to him, and this is her 
This is her rant in the Septuagint translation. How long will you hold out, saying, Behold, yet a little while, expecting the hope of my deliverance? For behold, your memorial is abolished from the earth, even your sons and your daughters, the pangs and pains of my womb, which I bore in vain with sorrows. And you yourself sit down to spend the night in the open air among the corruption of worms. And I'm a wanderer and a servant from place to place and house to house, waiting for the setting sun that I may rest from my labors and pains that now beset me. But say some word against the Lord and die. Doesn't that give you kind of a a picture of her participation in the suffering? Now these words, uh, as far as I could tell, are probably not inspired, but it gives you a little a little bit of a perspective on it, doesn't it? She's suffering as well. But or actually, that's verse, that would be verse 9. And verse 10 is the one where he has a response to her. He says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? What he's saying is, you're just speaking like a fool. Your suffering has made your mouth open and run significantly faster than your brain. Right? You're speaking like a fool. Later on, Job's three friends come and advise him. We'll talk about that. And at the end of it all, God says that those three friends spoke wrongly of God, and Job needs to pray for them. But God does not mention anything about Job's wife here. I think that Job's wife just had a moment of foolishness, her mouth open, some you know craziness spat out, curse God and die. And Job's like, this is not the woman that I know and love. But this is the first response. The first response, a response to suffering could be to curse God and die. I'm suffering. You know, I've lost my job, house, car, favorite tree. Forget it. Yep. Don't believe in God anymore. Yep. Mm. Right? That's a, that's a, it's a virtual sticking out your tongue to God. Right? Curse God and die. That That could be a response to suffering. That's... A foolish response. That would be the response of, of the fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, right? This is a foolish response. Don't do that. This is not a Christian response. So the foolish response to suffering. And Job had a, had a wise response, didn't he? Job says, you speak as a foolish woman speaks. Should we accept from God only good and not adversity? And all this Job did not sin in what he said. That's at the end of verse 10 there. And I think that that's really interesting. He did not sin in what he said. That's the testimony of the book of Job. Now, I think that Job's heart uh, had some problems. We're going to maybe talk about this a little bit. Actually, I want to tell you a little bit about more about his suffering, more about Job's suffering. So listen, later on in the book of Job, uh, we hear him talk about his former position. You know, you've heard the phrase, you know, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Well, Job was pretty mighty. Think of, listen to this description he says of himself, this is Job 29, 7. When I went out to the city gate and took my seat in a public square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the old men rose to their feet. The princes refrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands. The voices of the nobles were hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roofs of their mouths. This is Job 29, 21. He says, men listened to me with expectation, waiting silently for my counsel. After my words, they spoke no more. My speech settled on them like dew. They waited for me as rain and drank in my words like spring showers. If I smiled at them, they did not believe it. The light of my countenance was precious. He had reputation, didn't he? 
The light of my countenance was precious. I chose their course and presided as chief. So I dwelt as a king among his troops, as a comforter of the mourners. That's Job 29. In Job 30, verse 1, Job says, But now they mock me, men younger than I am, whose fathers I would have refused to entrust with my sheep dogs. And in verse 9, he says, And now they mock me in song. I've become a byword among them. People are singing mocking songs about Job. I can't imagine how those songs would go, but you can imagine the feeling of loss of Job. Job says that very well here in Job chapter 3, in verse 25. Job says, For the thing I feared has overtaken me, and what I dreaded has befallen me. The thing I feared has overtaken me, and what I dreaded has befallen me. Job's worst fear, his worst nightmare has come to place, has, has come to pass. He has lost his money, he lost his kids, he lost his power and prestige, and finally he lost his health. He's at the bottom. And so he sits in an ash heap. That's where Job's three friends find him. We have these these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And uh, those three represent another response to suffering. But their response to suffering is essentially, <coughs> basically, they say this, God blesses good people and curses bad people. You're clearly cursed. Clearly, you have sin. Logical. You must have sin, Job. You are filled with sin. Look at this terrible curse. You you must be filled with sin. Job himself actually summarizes their position better than they do themselves. The whole book of Job, it takes some patience to read. It's very kind of circuitous language, and it just kind of goes back and forth on all these things. But Job summarizes their position in 2713 and following. He says, this is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage the ruthless receive from the Almighty. Though his sons are many, they're destined for the sword, and his offspring will never have enough food. This is basically their thought. Their thought is, God punishes bad people. God blesses good people. Now, how many people in our society and culture today, in Western civilization, or Eastern, I guess, matter, in, in North America, think this way. You know, God is, you know, you know, if you're, God blesses you. If you're a good person, God blesses you. You know, well, I got lots of money. Oh, God, God blesses me. God must love me. God must really love me because, you know, I got myself a really cool car. You know, God must just absolutely love me. You know, bad stuff happens to you. You're like, damn, damn it. I missed that red light. God hates me. You ever do that? I used to do that. I'd be driving, driving to work and I get a red light. God must hate me. Drive here. Oh, another red light. God, God just is really mad at me today. What did I do? What did I do, God? This is the thought. This is their their mindset. Something happened to you. It must be because God's punishing you for your sin. You must have sin. Don't confess. If you just repent of your sin, Job, then God will say, ha, I'll stop punishing you. Great. That's not what happened at all. Now, I think we can suppose that the prose, prologue, and epilogue surround the book of Job, the dialogues within this book. I, I think we can suppose that that was revealed to Job later in life, after he was through with this ordeal. It might, we don't really know how the book of Job, the providence of this book, even anyway, it's an ancient, ancient, ancient book. 
with a highly varied manuscript tradition. And so it could be that a subsequent, you know, it, it was revealed to us, you know, his one of his sons later on, spoiler alert, he has new sons and new daughters. Maybe it was revealed to one of them and they recorded it for us. We don't really know. But Job had no idea what was going on, right? Job's friends had no idea. So they went to this logical conclusion. Well, you're suffering. God must just have it out for you. It's wrong. It's wrong. And in fact, you can uh, see how wrong this is if you want to read in Job 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, and this is what he said, God says, my wrath is kindled against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken about me accurately as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. Then my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So this is God's view of these guys. This is an incorrect view. So if you get a red light, you're going to go home from church today in about 10 minutes, and you're going to be driving along there, oh, blast another red light, come to a stop. God must really have it out. That's wrong, guys. That's not the way it works. That's not the way God works. It's not untrue that God does bless people for good works, generally speaking, proverbially speaking, but... You cannot equate your success or your suffering to God just has it out. That is just a wrong view. And that's what God says about these three friends who basically accuse Job of you know, harboring some secret sin. What's your secret sin? So that, you know, if you just repent of this terrible sin that you've committed, then God would, you know, raise you back to health. Well, God wasn't the one that gave him the sores in the first place, right? Who gave him the sores? Right. Okay. Oh, my. So Job's own response, his worst fear had come to pass. And I think that that's uh, Job's response. He did not sin, but he really desired to kind of have an audience with God. And he got one. And guess what he said after the end of his audience? He said, I repent in dust and ashes, right? So he did get an audience with God, but Job has some brilliant thoughts along the way. Oh, man, we... So much more we could say. Job says in uh, Job chapter 9, verse 32, some brilliant stuff here. He says, for he's not a man like me that I can answer him, that we can take each other to court. Yeah, you can't take God to court, can you? And this is what he says. Nor is there a mediator between us to lay his hand upon us both. Job wishes that there's some sort of mediator that could lay his hand, you know. All right, here's God and here's Job. I'll go between you guys. Oh, Job longed for that. We've got, I've got good news for you. Hopefully in the next 10 minutes, I'll get to share that there's a mediator now. We have a mediator. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. But Job longed for that. He also had some really good idea as to um, the end of it all. In Job 19, we have a well-known set of verses. Job 19.25, Job says, but I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand upon the earth. Even after my skin's been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I will see him for myself. My eyes will behold him, and not as a stranger. How my heart yearns within me, he says. 
1927. So Job says, I desire to speak to the Almighty to ar- and argue my case before God. In Job 31, he says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser compose an indictment. So he's still kind of believing that he must have some sort of, you know, this must be a punishment for sin. So um, much more can be said. I'm not going to talk about Elihu, who comes in and says largely true things in kind of a roundabout way. Um, And in God's response, I would invite you to read that. It's really amazing stuff. God says to Job, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you'll answer me. (laughs) That's an intimidating uh, thought. Uh, Henry Haley uh, summarizes chapters 38 to 41, which I highly recommend reading. If you don't read any of the Job, just read the God part, right? The rest of it's just these guys arguing around about making all these verbal stuff, whatever. Read 38 to 41. That's the actual interesting part. And he summarizes it. He says, God spoke out of the whirlwind, dwelling on the ignorance, impotence, helplessness, and infinitesimal smallness of man compared to God asking question after question that awed Job into silence and drove him to his knees. He writes, these are grand, sublime chapters. So I highly recommend reading those. So ultimately, we can see the big picture behind Job's sufferings. Job's suffering was not caused because God's like, yeah, you know what? You just you just told that little white lie. Well, whammo, right? It wasn't as a result of some sort of a secret sin that was unconfessed. Instead, his suffering was a result of God bragging about it, right? And so we don't know if Job ever fully got that big picture. I would kind of like to think that he probably did, but, you know, I can't. I probably won't die from that belief. But I want to talk about a, a Christian perspective. So a Christian, Christians have a fundamentally different and spiritual perspective on suffering because we recognize that this life is only a prelude to the next so in Romans uh, 20, at the end of 20, in verse 21, it says, uh, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Bondage to decay. Set free from that. From bondage to decay. So I want to talk about the example of the Apostle Paul. We have a New Testament example. Unlike Job, the Apostle Paul We read in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul gives us this very interesting insight. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited. This is uh, 12, uh, starting at the end of 7. Paul writes, to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan. Does this not sound reminiscent of Job? What happened to Job? To keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. That is why, for the sake of Christ, I delight in weaknesses. Let's read that one again. That is why, for the sake of Christ, how do you even read this? I delight in weaknesses. It continues. In insults in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Think about that for a couple of weeks. I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, persecutions, difficulties. That's crazy. This is, this is the Christian perspective. Our suffering is not 
comparable to what follows. So continuing in Romans, let's read this here in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul writes, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly, this is the New American Standard again, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's God, he cursed the earth. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. He's talking about the life to come. Christians have a unique perspective on suffering. We know that suffering is in this world because of the curse. We know that some suffering is in this world because of sin, either our own sins or other people's sins. This is why we suffer. And there may be those whose sufferings are actually caused by Satan himself, Paul, Job. Another source of suffering for Christians is the Savior. The Savior. It could be that the name of our Savior causes people to persecute us, to hate us. The name of our Savior. In that name, we gladly rejoice. And we look forward to what's been described here. We look forward to this, the redemption of our body. This whole creation groans in childbirth. We groan. When we suffer, of course we groan. And we have something to look forward to that's far beyond, far beyond what we have here, what we can see now in this world. Let me read to you a few more verses just to encourage you in closing here. Christ himself, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we read that if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. 1 Peter 2.21, for this To this you are called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they heaped abuse on him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats, but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You can entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Christ is your example. When you suffer, you know you can entrust yourself to him who judges justly. In fact, in chapter 3, Peter continues that thought. 1 Peter 3, 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be prepared to give a defense. Let's see, where is it? Uh, 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. In John chapter 15, Jesus spoke to his friends, his disciples in the upper room. The whole chapter is practically read in your Bible. If you've got one of those Bibles that uses red ink for the words of Christ, John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus says, Remember the word I spoke to you, no servant's greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute, persecute you as well. If they kept my word, they will keep yours as well. But they will treat you like this because of my name, since they do not know the one who sent me. So we have, we have a mediator. Job longed for a mediator. Man, I have totally run out of time. So much 
more could be said. All right. I have to just say this about uh, in closing part two, the end of chapter four. Hebrews, let me read you these words from the book of Hebrews in chapter four, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus knows much more about temptation than probably any of us will ever know. He got tempted personally by the devil himself. He did not waver. All things, who cannot he's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The conclusion is in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, you can confidently go straight to the throne room. Bam, right in there, right to the throne room. Just boldly march right in there. Bonk, bonk, bonk. Here I am, God. Here's my request. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, God does not promise that when you get saved, you're going to have so much Holy Spirit power that you're not even going to touch the ground. You'll just be... Uh, a little bit hovering above it. You know, here I am. I'm so spiritual filled. I'm just hovering along the ground, you know. Nope. But he gives it to you in your time of need, in our time of need. That's when we he gives it to us. In your time of need, you'll hear stories of mothers lifting cars off of babies. You'll hear stories of people getting on their knees and begging God and things happening that cannot be explained in our time of need. And so we have boldness to do this. And this is how Christians can deal with suffering. So when God says to Paul that my grace is sufficient for you, when God says to you in your suffering, my grace is sufficient for you, know that in your time of need, you're going to have grace beyond your wildest imagination in your time of need. Let us draw near with confidence, boldness in some translations. that We may say, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. God and Father, thank you so much for the encouragement we have from your word. Lord, just uh, pray that uh, these words would be an encouragement to all present here, Lord. We pray that you would uh, help us to have uh, a mind and a heart that's able to uh, minister to those in need who are suffering and to be able to uh, well endure it ourselves, having our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so we uh, just lift these things before you in the name of your son, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.